Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. It's been 18 years since U.S. forces launched Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan on the heels of the 9-11 terror attacks in the U.S., Within two months, the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies were mostly defeated from their power bases, but the Taliban quickly reformed, and the war has gone on and on, the longest war in U.S. history. Hope for a peace settlement between the U.S., the Afghan government, and the Taliban have been dashed after President Trump canceled the summit at Camp David, in which the president reportedly wanted to host Taliban leaders, an extraordinary development in of itself. Joining the crisis next door to talk about what's next in Afghanistan is Michael Rubin, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and also teaches classes on terrorism for the FBI and on security, politics, religion, and history for U.S. and NATO military units. Michael, thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. Hey, thanks for having me. Michael, shortly before President Trump canceled the potential summit, and there's some question as to whether one was going to take place, U.S. Special Envoy to Afghanistan, Zalmay Khalizad, told U.S. politicians that negotiators reached an agreement with the Taliban. Did Khalizad actually have something meaningful to bring to Capitol Hill, and what was the reception? Well, second question first, the reception was rather poor, because there's a lot of aspirational thinking in the deal which, or in the framework agreement, if you will, that Special Envoy Zalmay Khalilzad presented. The basic outline of the deal, as far as we can tell, was that the United States would begin to withdraw forces, or would actually withdraw most of its forces from Afghanistan, and in exchange, the Taliban would agree no longer to allow Afghanistan to be used as a safe haven for al-Qaeda terror. The problem was there was a lot of questions over how firm commitments were, and there were a lot of unknowns. For example, what would the role of Pakistan, would, what would the role of Pakistan be? Would there really be a residual U.S. counterterrorism force? And even very basic questions like, what is the Taliban? You wrote in the National Interest that the biggest problem in Khalizad's approach is that it ignores Pakistan in the equation, with Islamabad responsible for undercutting Afghan stability while supporting extremism. Just how much of a problem is Pakistan in Afghanistan? Well, remember that Afghanistan is landlocked, and so in many ways it has to be dependent upon its neighbors, whether those neighbors are the former Soviet republics in Central Asia whether it's Iran or whether it's Pakistan. Pakistan, however, is a country which, of course, formed in 1947 when India was partitioned, and it's a country with very little, if you will, confidence about its identity. On one hand, it claims to be an Islamic republic. Pakistan literally means land of the pure. But on the other hand, it's torn by ethnic divisions. And historically, and you've you got to excuse me, I'm a historian by training, which means I get paid to predict the past, 
Admittedly, I only get that right about half the time. But Pakistan throughout its history has been undercut by ethnic separatist movements, including those based in Afghanistan. So what Pakistan has done throughout its history, or throughout since the 1970s at least, is promote a much more radical view of Islamism, with the idea that if everyone is united by religion, then ethnic differences don't matter as much. This is one of the reasons why Pakistan has interfered so grievously in Afghanistan. If I could just make a simple analogy, I mean, Pakistan is to the Taliban what Iran is to Hezbollah. And is there a concern from Pakistan that a united Afghanistan would cause grievances within Pakistan, within its own minority groups, and they would potentially rise against Islamabad? Absolutely. You know, we always worry now about infiltration from the Taliban or al-Qaeda coming across the border into Afghanistan from Pakistan. Remember, of course, Pakistan has been caught red-handed acting as a safe haven. That's where former al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden was based for the latter years of his life. But in the 1950s and 60s, the infiltration was actually going the other way from Afghanistan into Pakistan. Here's the problem. The majority, or I should say, the majority population in Afghanistan is an ethnic group called the Pashtun. However, back in 1893, the British divided the Pashtun areas uh, in half, basically, with what's called the Duran Line. That's the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan today. There's actually more than twice as many Pashtuns in Pakistan, and there's always been a movement among the Pashtuns you know, maybe we should unite with each other. Maybe we belong together in a greater Afghanistan rather than be a minority in Pakistan. Not to go off on a separate tangent or anything, but it's pretty amazing how we're still feeling the results and impacts from colonialism throughout Asia. Well, that's absolutely the case, and not just Asia, of course, the Middle East. The late um, historian Bernard Lewis said if, if you look at a map of the Middle East, for example, every time you see a straight line... That, that's a sign of an artificial country, or at least an artificial border. I've traveled all around Afghanistan, all around the borders. I used to live in Iran as well. And when you look at the borders of Afghanistan, every single border of Afghanistan is an artifact of some element of 19th century military or diplomatic history. What can the U.S. use as leverage against Pakistan to get it to end its support of the Taliban? Well, this is the key. And this is where I'm most critical of Zalmay Khalilzad's agreements. We have become dependent on Pakistan, um, not just now, but back in the 1980s when we were helping the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet um, Union at the time. But on one hand, we're dependent on, Afga- uh, on Pakistan. On the other hand, for example, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the George W. Bush administration declared Pakistan to be a major non-NATO ally. And when you have that designation, other countries, I believe, like Israel, have this delegation. Um, Israel, perhaps Egypt, have this designation. What it basically means is you have a lot more economic um, channels open for trade, for grants, for foreign aid. There are also other lists that Pakistan could be put on or removed from in order to coerce behavior. For example, um, you have various terrorism lists 
if Pakistan um, is blacklisted by something called the Financial Action Task Force, often abbreviated FATF, it means that it won't have access to a lot of international funding, not just from the United States, but from the International Monetary Fund, from the World Bank. And recently, Pakistan has gotten um, a $6 billion International Monetary Fund loan, and the Pakistani economy is so if you will, dependent on outside assistance, that this is a means in which there could be real leverage. The ultimate, um, if you will, lever could be simply declaring Pakistan a state, a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, a, a state sponsor of terror, and by all intents and purposes, it is. Now, one of the interesting things many people don't realize is that in the aftermath of 9-11, the George, George W. Bush issued an executive order which allowed the Treasury Department to also construct its own terror lists. If you compare the traditional State Department terrorism list with the Treasury Department terrorism list, the Treasury Department terrorism list is about seven or eight times as long simply because they don't take into account diplomatic considerations when constructing this list. They tend to be much more objective rather than subjective, and not surprisingly, Pakistan features highly on the various state um, on the various treasury department lists veering away from diplomacy the us has avoided striking taliban bases in pakistan uh, why not hit those bases after all tracking down and killing osama bin laden in pakistan was not an issue why not hit the taliban there too are there lessons to glean from india's strikes in pakistan over kashmir well i mean when push comes to shove there's two things going on here pakistan of course doesn't like to be the target of unilateral action, and Pakistan isn't simply a country with no means at its disposal. It's a nuclear power on one hand, and you don't want to either strike a nuclear power at which point you could have, um, I mean, hostility erupt or escalate. On the other hand, if there are repeated strikes into Pakistan and this creates a popular reaction, then ultimately you have questions about the stability in Pakistan. Are you going to radicalize the country further? In the great power context, look, I work in Washington, That's and I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and oftentimes, look, we have a problem in Washington where we all navel-gaze and we think that the world revolves around us, but we're not the only players in the sandbox. Over the last couple years, the unreported story is just how close Pakistan has become towards China, and so the United States doesn't want to do anything which further pushes Pakistan into the Chinese orbit. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Afghanistan with Michael Rubin, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and also teaches classes on terrorism for the FBI and on security, politics, religion, and history for U.S. and NATO military units. Getting back to potential negotiations with the Taliban, U.S. officials have indicated that the draft agreement with the Taliban included a commitment from the group to begin intra-Afghan negotiations. How big of a deal is it that when the Taliban for years swore it would never talk to the Afghan government and never hold talks while U.S. soldiers are in Afghanistan? Well, this is one of those big questions out here, uh, question mark over what Zameh Khalilzad and the Taliban meant. All throughout these negotiations, the Taliban have been refusing to recognize the legitimacy of the Afghan government, and it's not clear that they have changed. One of the ironies of this is that, on one hand, the Taliban 
will say that they are legitimate, and they are more legitimate than the Afghan government, which they call illegitimate. But on the other hand, Afghanistan is supposed to go to elections on September 28th, just a couple weeks from now, and the United States and the European Union were talking about trying to convince the Afghans to cancel these elections for fear that it would interfere in the peace process. Now, it's not clear that when the Taliban say they're willing to enter into negotiations, that they're really willing to sit down with the Afghan government. They still don't recognize it. Frankly, what I would say is if the Taliban believe that they are legitimate, why don't they simply go to the polls as well? But most people suspect that if the Taliban went to the polls, they'd only get 8 to 10% of the vote. So what we don't want to do is basically um, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Is it even possible to consider some sort of joint government between the Taliban and the current government in Kabul? It is, but it sounds much more persuasive in the United States, perhaps, especially after 18 years of war, than in Afghanistan. And again, this goes back to history. The Taliban first erupted onto the stage in 1994. They promised that they weren't going to go. The Taliban are mostly Pashtun. They promised they weren't going to go into minority areas of Afghanistan, and yet in 1995 they seized the western Afghanistan city of Herat. There were negotiations for a joint government in 1996 when the Taliban attacked Kabul and then took over 90% of the country. So there are a lot of doubts about the sincerity of, of the Taliban. At the same time, I think an apocryphal saying often attributed to Albert Einstein is insanity is doing the same action repeatedly, but always expecting different results. The deal which Zameh Khalilzad has uh, supposedly come up to with regard to the, the Taliban is the same deal that Bill Clinton's administration made with the Taliban pre-9-11. That is, the Taliban would tra- um, close her training camps and quarantine Osama bin Laden. In hindsight, we knew that they weren't sincere then. What makes us believe that they are any more sincere now? It said the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so finds the Taliban and the U.S. when it comes to the Islamic State, whose Afghan affiliate is battling the Taliban on a regular basis. The U.S. likes that, but it also wants the Taliban to renounce al-Qaeda, which seems a bit trickier given longtime Taliban reverence for Osama bin Laden. Do you think that will ever happen, and how critical is that for peace? Well, it's essential to peace, but... While the text of the deal hasn't been published, I've been able to talk to officials in Afghanistan, officials in other neighboring countries who have been briefed on the deal, and what they say is it's unclear the extent to which the Taliban um, renouncement of, um, renunciation, I'm sorry, of of al-Qaeda is actually set in stone. Are they simply saying that al-Qaeda won't be able to operate attacks on the United States from Afghan territory? Are you talking about a complete disassociation? This gets more complicated because of the nature of Afghan society. And everyone knows now, especially after 18 years, just how tribal and clannish Afghan society can be. So it's all well and good in the United States for someone to talk about the Taliban on one hand and al-Qaeda on the other. But if you're talking about two cousins, is it realistic to expect that one cousin is going to renounce uh, completely in a tribally based society, his other cousin, and the answer to that is probably no. So it's unclear whether what looks good on paper is actually going to translate into reality. How does the sacking of National Security Advisor John Bolton affect the talks? He was adamant about not dealing with the Taliban. Well, 
John Bolton certainly did not, he was not favorable towards negotiation with the Taliban. I suspect John Bolton left more because of issues relating to um, changes of policy with regard to the Islamic Republic of Iran. But what John Bolton's departure means is that there is one less person um, giving contrary advice, if you will, to President Trump. And on one hand, people can say, hey, look, it's good if we don't agree with what John Bolton, John Bolton um, is too militant or too hawkish. But on the other hand, I would say whether a president is Democratic or Republican, it's always good for someone in his inner circle to be able to speak truth to power. Aaron David Miller, who was a former State Department official who has advised presidents of both parties, has talked about how the presidency is such an isolated um, institution that it's essential that you allow people in your inner circle to basically speak truth to power, to raise doubts. Otherwise, um, there is no speed bump, no impediment to going down a rabbit hole. In this case, I, um, it perhaps makes a deal with the Taliban more likely, but on the other hand, it may make the deal much more flawed because you won't have someone to be able to point out the loopholes. I don't think too many people 18 years ago would have thought that American boots would still be on the ground in Afghanistan in 2019. There's not a lot of support in the U.S. to stay there forever. What are the risks if President Trump makes good on a prior promise to pull all U.S. troops out? Well, nature abhors a vacuum. And so ultimately the question isn't whether the United States needs to stay in perpetuity, but rather how do you fill the vacuum so that the United States doesn't need to fill it? Uh, is that vacuum going to be filled by the Afghan national um, government and the Afghan national security forces. By the way, one of those unknowns out there with regard to the deal is whether Taliban forces are going to be merged with the Afghan national security forces, whether the Afghan national security forces would accept that, or whether they would simply go home and worsen the vacuum. But ultimately, the question is, can India, for example, the major power um, in the region and a competitor to Pakistan, step up to the plate? Can they somehow fill the vacuum? How else can we empower Afghanistan? Or, likewise, as we talked about before, how can we coerce Pakistan into not helping and actually not helping the Taliban and perhaps beginning to hinder them? Interesting bringing India into the equation. How would that work with Pakistan? Would it be a potential proxy fight between those two countries in Afghanistan? Well, in many ways, it already is a proxy fight between those two countries, and it has been since um, before Operation Enduring Freedom, the operations in Afghanistan began. Many people forget that. I believe it was in um, 1999, an Air India plane was hijacked and was forced to land in Kabul under Taliban rule, and this really became a spark between India and Pakistan, and that spark has continued ever since. I've talked with Afghan officials when I'm there, when, well, just two anecdotes. Number one, I've gone, I go to Afghanistan from time to time. I'm a civilian, so I fly in civilian. I'm not going in with protection. Uh, once after a conference, we all returned to Kabul. There were Indians there, Pakistanis, Saudis, um, pro-Taliban people, and so forth. Everyone hopped into their bulletproof um, armored cars, except for the Pakistani ambassador who just got into a normal car. And the, the quip was, well, if you know where the bombs are going to go off in advance, you don't need to have an armored car. At the same time, I've had 
Afghan officials tell me when American diplomats will say, a bomb will go off and American diplomats will say, you know, Pakistan had nothing to do with this, the Taliban was acting independently. I've had Afghan authorities tell me that's nonsense, that Americans don't know how to do counterterrorism. I'll challenge them and say, what do you mean? And they say, well, the only way the Pakistanis are going to understand and stop supporting Taliban terrorism is if a bomb goes off in Kabul, for example, the, the capital of Afghanistan, then a bomb should also go off in Islamabad the capital of Pakistan. If a bomb goes off in Jalalabad, a major city in Afghanistan, then a bomb should go off in Lahore, a major city in Pakistan. And, and the implication was that perhaps the Afghans need to take the fight into Pakistan. And so if there is a withdrawal, we could also have a situation where this proxy war with Afghanistan, in many ways supported by India, will spread terrorism across the region. There are arguments that the U.S. needs to approach Afghanistan like it did Vietnam with the Paris Peace Accords in 1973, which effectively paused the war and called it peace, allowing the U.S. to withdraw within two years and let the war become South Vietnam's problem. Is that possible with Afghanistan? It is possible with Afghanistan. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, about Afghanistan is there's a precedent for this with regard to the Soviet withdrawal. When the Soviets, the Soviets basically pulled out in 1989, and the Afghan government, the Najibullah government, um, which they had supported, lasted until 1992. It's interesting to realize why that Afghan government was able to survive three years. We remember the end of the Cold War, but what we forget, we talk about our own peace dividend. Um, the George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton administrations talked about the peace dividend, but in the Soviet Union or in Russia, you had a lot of military equipment that was withdrawn from Eastern Europe. Much of that made its way into Afghanistan, and so because they were still getting funding, because they were still getting equipment, the Afghan government was able to survive for another three years until the money ran out. They were no longer able to pay off their allies or other tribes. That's when they collapsed, and you had civil war. The question is, if the United States pulls out, how much resources will the Afghan government have at their disposal in order to keep this alive, in, in order to keep their defense alive. There's other much more specific capabilities they lack. For example, medevac. I mean, it's one thing to tell an Afghan that they have to fight the Taliban. They want to. Most Afghans don't like the Taliban. But it's another thing to tell them, and if they're wounded today, then we are able to medevac them to a hospital to be treated. But if the Afghans can't do medevac themselves, then it's another thing to tell them that if they get wounded, they're probably just going to die on the, belly, um, on the battlefield, even if it would otherwise be a treatable wound. That's the sort of capability that the Afghans don't have. So instead of just approaching this with, a, with an axe, sometimes we have to look at the problem set with a scalpel. Michael, dusting off your crystal ball, is peace even on the remote horizon in Afghanistan? Well, let me put it this way. I'm married to a Soviet refugee, and she tells a a joke from the Soviet Union or, or from Russia about the difference between a Russian optimist and a pessimist. The Russian pessimist is the one who says, you know, things have never been so bad. Just look around. I mean, it's horrible. And the Soviet optimist is the one who says, no, 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 they can always get worse. So in many ways, let me say that when it comes to Afghanistan, I'm an optimist. That's a great way of putting it. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Hey, thank you for having me. We've been joined by Michael Rubin, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and also teaches classes on terrorism for the FBI and on security, politics, religion, and history for U.S. and NATO military units. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. 
The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 